in God's house evermore my dwelling place shall be. You know that picture we have in Revelation is of uh, the city, the New Jerusalem coming down and uh, it's a thousand miles long, it's a thousand miles wide and it's a thousand miles high. That's a very odd shaped city. Um, That perfect cube, do you understand the significance of that? In the inner temple, uh, it was a, a perfect cube in the dwelling place of God. And what we have then is uh, our Father's house that has many dwelling places. We have uh, this dwelling place of God so that all of his people can be with him forever, the new Jerusalem. Well, let's uh, read together in Second Peter chapter 3. I told you we were going to be done, but I, I realized that there was uh, yet more that would be applicable to us, especially today from verses 10 through 13. So we'd like to read these to you from, again, 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. Let's pray once more. Come, Lord Jesus, we read such words with anticipation and delight. Oh, how we long for an eternal home, a home of righteousness. Oh, if this is the cursed creation, what must the new heavens and the new earth be like? The glory of this proclaims the handiwork of its maker, how the new creation must even more shine in glory. We pray that you would bless us as we continue to set our hearts on things yet unseen to us and yet very near in time. We pray, our Father, that you would haste the day that the faith would be sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've ever had an MRI, you have a man named Isidore Isaac Rabbi to think. Rabbi was an American physicist who received the Nobel Prize in 1944 for discovering that you can make images with nuclear magnetic Resonance, in short, MRI. Rabbi was once asked in an interview, why did you become a scientist? His answer, my mother. When every other child would be asked, did you learn anything in school today? My mother would ask me, did you ask any good questions in school today? Well, from his mother, Rebbe learned that it's, learned that it's uh, not enough to get the answers that we need. We also need to ask the right questions, and the questions can make all the difference. Now, as I said this morning, Christians of all people are able to face the great questions of life. We are able to ask and answer questions that the world is ignorant of, but you need to ask the right questions in order to find the real answers. Some years ago, the British Prime Minister, William Gladstone, uh, confronted a young man who wanted to go into law 
and government. Uh, Gladstone asked him what his plans were. Well, bursting with anticipation and ambition and energy, he replied, first law, then government. Asked Gladstone, then what? Service to my nation. Then what? Pressed Gladstone. Perhaps fame and wealth? Then what? I, I guess to retire and to live on what I have made. Then what? What do you mean? I guess I'll die. Then what? Pressed Gladstone again. There was complete silence. Gladstone said, young man, you had better go back and think life through. If you don't know where you're going, you're never going to get there, you see. Then what? It's an important question. Then what? A question that you might even be asking after this morning's study on the resurrection. Well, if we are to be raised imperishable, if this mortal will soon put on immortality, then what? You know, I asked Microsoft's new AI that question this afternoon, and I received a very reassuring answer. Uh, among other things, it, 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 it told me that heaven is not one long church service. Woo! Glad we have such AI. Uh, and we won't be sitting on some lonely cloud for eternity practicing on a harp. And there are many other misconceptions among Christians about which, about which I'll be speaking this evening. Um, and I would like to set some biblical hope before us instead. In our passage, Peter has been telling us about the day of the Lord that will surely come, despite the gainsaying of some, the dread judgment that it will bring upon the ungodly. And, what is our focus today, the new heavens and the new earth that awaits us as our eternal home of righteousness. Now, most people today apparently don't believe in hell, they say. Um, they don't take the prospect of it seriously, even if they believe it exists. And in the case of heaven, well, it seems that still most every American is a believer. But once again, it hardly makes any practical difference. At least it has no effect on their life day to day in the world. This is not a new problem I was interested to find. Over 350 years ago, Richard Baxter wrote this, quote, One would think that a man would almost forget to eat and drink and should care for nothing else but how to get this treasure of eternal life with the Lord. And yet, people who profess to believe it as a fundamental article of their faith do as little mind it or labor for it, as if they had never heard of any such thing. Interesting. The Bible speaks about a joyful, bright, happy, perfect, everlasting world, far better than anything that we know here. In Psalm 16, David reflects, I have set the Lord always before me, and therefore my heart is glad, and my flesh will rest in hope. You will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand, we sung it earlier, pleasures forevermore. What an amazing statement. And there are many more like that. Nevertheless, Christians don't talk about, or often even think about, the life to come very much. It is strange that we who are on our way to such a place don't think about where we're going. 
We are not as much as we should be like those saints in Hebrews 11 who saw the heavenly country, as it were, from afar and sought it all their lives. And after describing the lives of the early patriarchs and what they overcame, Hebrews 11 says, having seen such promises afar off, they were assured of them and embraced them. And they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Well, is that all our desire? I mean, I know we believe it, but do we think about it? Is this what we are seeking? Well, if so, let's have a little more taste of it tonight. Let's consider this teaching from the passage before us about our eternal home and what that might mean for us. What is this uh, teaching about a new creation here? Well, I should, I should give you the back, of, the back story. God made the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was all very good. And then at the fall of man, Genesis chapter 3, God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the herb of the field in the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And ever since, the earth has been cursed, cursed for man's sake, made painful, hostile, and at the end, lethal because of sin. Toil and sweat, thorns and thistles, dust to dust. That's our world. This is the only world that we've ever known, of course. A a world that is still just as hostile and lethal as it ever was, in which even despite all of our advances, tornadoes still kill people in the middle of the night while they sleep. Men are at the mercy of nature that is red in tooth and claw, as Tennyson put it. We live in a disordered, dangerous world. It's called in Psalm 84, not without reason, a veil of tears, a valley of tears. And it's, of course, amazingly wonderful, but still, when we think of these things, startlingly startlingly terrible at one and the same time. Drought, earthquake, fire, storm, this is a creation gone wrong. It betrays in a thousand glorious ways the hand of such a genius that made it but it betrays in many other ways a curse that lies hard upon it. Now, some passages seem to suggest that at the end of this age, God will merely destroy this world and create something new outright. We we read here in verse 10 and 11, for instance, how the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up And all these things will be dissolved. Well, that seems uh, plain enough. It's all going away. Jesus also, for his part, said, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will by no means pass away. Similar passages in Revelation and elsewhere seem to indicate the outright destruction of this world. However, there are many other passages which seem to indicate to us that the fire, spoken of here, 
comes not to um, uh, destroy outright, but as it were to purify and remake the same creation into something else. Um, as though you could take a piece of metal, drop it into the fire, and uh, then make it new as you like. Well, for example, we read in Romans chapter 8 how the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Why does the creation eagerly await it? For the creation was subject to futility or vanity, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation, listen, the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Okay. So this world was damaged through our sin, as we see, but it will be renewed just as our bodies themselves are redeemed. Um, Paul is, is picturing the creation eagerly waiting for the return of Jesus. And why should the mountains and the seas long for the return of the Lord? Because that creation is going to also be delivered from its bondage to corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That is, like, just as these physical bodies will be raised from the dead um, somehow in their self, the self-same body, but, but somehow in a new glorious way, like Christ's glorious body, so the world will be delivered from its decay and somehow in this self-same world will be glorified as well. A complete remaking, but uh, the earth is now groaning, not for its destruction, but as it were, birth pangs to be delivered from its curse. So the destruction of the earth that's prophesied in the Bible, will not completely eradicate it, but it will bring an utter end to its current form, just like Noah's flood destroyed the earth. It didn't eradicate it. But uh, you might imagine a, a, fear, a, 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 a fire that clears a field down to the bare dirt that new life could spring up after it. Well, it may be in a similar way. Uh, we find that the judgment that comes upon the earth itself of fire does prepare and remake it to, it to be new heavens and new earth. So Jesus also describes this as the regeneration or renewal of all things when he comes in his glory. Blessed are the meek, he says, for they shall inherit the earth. That is to say, this earth. Renewed, transformed, but still the self-same earth, even as our bodies will be transformed, renewed, but still the self-same body. Or um, Peter himself, upon healing a crippled beggar, the powers of the age to come, in Acts chapter 3, tell the people of Jesus Christ, whom heaven must receive, until the times of the restoration 
of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. All right. All through the Bible, he's pointing out, we are reminded that God cares not merely to redeem people, but to redeem his creation as a whole. Just as man brought upon it a curse, so he comes to make its blessings flow far as the curse is found. So many psalms celebrate God's blessings of renewal upon the earth in the days of Messiah. And likewise, the prophets, Isaiah 55, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. Uh, Picturing a world of the future in which death, disharmony, and suffering has at last been removed. And so when we read uh, here in 2 Peter 3, uh, quoting Isaiah, by the way, or parallel passage in Revelation about a new heaven and a new earth, we must remember that the word new can also mean renewed or made new. For example, I quoted Paul this morning when he said, if anyone was in Christ, he's a new creation, a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Well, it's still the same old you, but as we prayed this morning, we have put on the new man and are being renewed according to the image of God who created us. All right. So in summary, when our Lord returns, the passage is saying, this earth upon which we live and these heavens under which we lived will be by fire, uh, on the one hand, uh, destroyed or uh, disintegrated, but then renewed and restored and liberated from the bondage to decay, similar as our bodies. And all traces of sin shall be removed. It'll be the home of righteousness. And we will live forever in a new heavens and a new earth. That is the promise. Elsewhere, the Bible calls this glory and rest and heaven, paradise, the eternal country and city, our Father's home or simply just home. In the book of Revelation, we're reminded that God himself will forever dwell with us there, and it describes how we won't need certain things. He'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor pain, the former things having passed away. We will dwell there in perfect knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, engaged in service, worship, and reigning with him in loving communion with others and in full communion with God. That is what the home of righteousness means. Well, I'll uh, add a few things before we go to the practical teaching. Um, What else does this imply? Well, the Bible tells us, uh, I'm going to make five points. These taken right from Ted Donnelly's book on heaven and hell. We shall be like him. We shall be like him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Or it says in Romans 8, our present sufferings aren't worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. There is glory to be revealed 
in us, in you and me, in the people of Christ, conformed to the image of Jesus. The glory begins when we are called here and now. It uh, is then perfected in soul, in what we're calling the intermediate state in theology, where our souls are temporarily separated from our bodies. But as Paul reminds us, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And there our souls are made perfect in holiness and immediately pass into glory. The book of Hebrews mentions to us the spirits of just men made perfect and so forth. But our hope is not yet complete. Point two, we will be raised imperishable. We will be raised imperishable. Just as our Savior's body was raised from the dead, his soul did not remain in Sheol or Hades. Jesus, in his body, said, Handle me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as I have. And in the same way, we read, The Lord will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he's able to subdue all things to himself. We born the image of the earthly man. We're going to bear the image of the heavenly man. There's a powerful confirmation here of the Bible's doctrine of the goodness of the human body and physical life. Christianity must part company with these philosophies like Platonism or the religions like Buddhism that imagine some heavenly existence with no physical body. No, God likes bodies. He made them. The prospect of renewed bodies in a renewed creation is a powerful affirmation that God has made this world our home and that it is good. What then will risen bodies be like? Well, the Bible uses uh, some uh, language of metaphor to say that they'll be the same but different, like a, a seed that you sow. It grows up not exactly to be what you sowed. A seed falls, a seed decays, and then something sprouts, and you get something that's the same but different. 1 Corinthians 15. We will be utterly beyond the reach of sickness, injury, pain, and death. All of our aches and pains will just be so many memories, if we could even remember them. I think they're just now making us long for heaven. Some of you have those special blessings to help you long for heaven more, right? You know what pain is. You know what weakness is and sickness and disability. And we're very, very conscious of what it means, perhaps even for loved ones. But we're going to be raised incorruptible and conformed to his glorious body. So to natural, raised a spiritual body, but the self-same body. Number three, we will then dwell in a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, we've read that already, but the Bible gives some poetic descriptions of a sea of glass and gates of pearl and crowns and streets of gold in a city that's a thousand miles high. These descriptions are probably not to be taken literally, probably poetic ways of describing what is precious and valuable, what is bright and radiant, what is permanent and indestructible. Uh, I, I don't know, maybe there will be some of these things there, but it's written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. As, that, as, as if to say, all these majestic pictures Aren't even bothered to be aren't even worth being compared. Uh, the things that God has prepared so far exceed them. But he goes on to say, God has revealed them to us by His Spirit. That is to say, even though we don't know what exactly we are longing for, 
We are longing. We instinctively long for a world that is put to rights, a, a home of righteousness as the spirit within us cries out for this eternal home without us even knowing exactly what it is or where it will be. But when we're there, we'll know this is nothing like what we were even hoping. It is so much better. It's so glorious. We read in Hebrews 11 about believers seeing from afar the eternal country, the city with foundations. And as if to say, it's more wonderful than we can imagine. It's something we can feel in our bones, but we cannot exactly describe. Imperishable, incorruptible, uh, that doesn't fade away. And how everything good and wonderful in this world is just a signpost to that great world to come. Let's forever get out of our heads the image of miserable harps and people sitting on lonely clouds. We will have lives of rich significance, of accomplishment, of relationships with the excellent of the earth, of all that we know that is good and rich and satisfying and pleasing. There will be pleasures forevermore at our God's right hand in this new heavens and a new earth. What a home it will be. God will also bring with him, number four, those who sleep in Jesus. And Paul, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 comforts those who are grieving and says, I don't want you to sorrow as those who have no hope. For God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus, comfort one another with these words. We will be with our loved ones in the Lord and many, many, many new loved ones for all eternity without even a hair's breadth between us. And all the images of the Bible of this life to come, you notice, are corporate. The holy city, the marriage supper of the Lamb. These, these images of great multitudes praising and rejoicing with all their hearts together. We won't be drifting on our own little cloud. We'll be part of a great multitude of all the ages of nations and cultures with rich stories to tell of whom Jesus will be the hero. And think of the millions and billions of believers, your brothers and sisters, whom you will love with a perfect, unreserved love and who will love you back far better than you have been loved in this life. And we will love one another with an unceasing love, perfect to all eternity. And fifth, so shall we be with the Lord. Save the best for last. I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus said, so that where I am, there you may be also. And that city of God comes down to earth. Heaven comes to earth. And then in your presence will be fullness of joy indeed. We will be overwhelmed by the beauty of our God, by the majesty of our Savior, to know his love, his grace, his power, his holiness, his joy in ways that we have never known. These souls of ours that are so dull will be filled up with rapture and intense delight in this fountain of love and goodness, which is our God. And our bodies, likewise, will be fitted for the job. And we will be transformed and cry out to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be glory, blessing, and honor, and all might and dominion forever and ever. Individual salvation is a great thing but God's promise and power and salvation goes so far beyond that to a great world with, with the Lord himself in our center of our midst at the renewal and restoration of all things. This, in summary, is the Christian hope, our expectation for the, for the final state of all things in Christ. And then, in summary, 
is our life to come. Now, briefly for the rest of the time, I'd like to ask, what difference should this make now? What difference should this make now? Well, it, it should make a difference, and we uh, should think of this and long for it more. We know that we ought to. Um, you could imagine Pilgrim's Progress. We're studying in Sunday school. If, if we were studying Pilgrim's Progress, but there was no celestial city at the end, it would be a, 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 a story of a pointless journey, a, a bridge to nowhere, right? Don't we make fun of those projects, right, when they make those things? Right? Well, what would be the point? Well, you lose the prospect of life everlasting, and the purpose and meaning of our pilgrimage goes away also. We're pilgrims, and pilgrims are reminded that this isn't the place where they're going to stay. This isn't their home country. They're going somewhere. Woody Allen said the trick in writing a play is to start with a good, strong ending, and write backward. Well, as we turn to the last page of the Bible, we learn the final page of the final part of our drama, our human drama. It's a good ending. And we need to have our mind and heart set on that ending. God had it in view when he made the world and determined, predestined each one of us to be part of that glory. And the ending that he had in view was a life together in him in such a world as we've just described, a life that would last forever. And this should affect us today in practical ways, as one writer put it, in all of our troubles, we're to remember the rest that we will soon enter. In our battles, we're to remember the victory soon to be ours. In our struggles, we're to remember the judgment day and the crown that Christ has laid up for us and everyone who fights his battles. In our longings, we're to remember the perfect satisfaction of life that awaits us in heavens. In the darkness of this life, we're to hold fast the prospect of opening our eyes upon the glory of God. From this future, which God has promised and Christ has guaranteed, we draw our courage and fortitude, our hope, our patience, our moral resolve, and the joy that is our strength. But all of that, of course, is another way of saying that we must live by faith. We must believe what has been revealed to us, and we must put that revelation to work in our lives. Well, what more can I say, right? It's to affect every part of our Christian lives. It's why we long for holiness, for as I read earlier, we know that we're going to be like him, and everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. Uh, it's to help us at work as those slaves in Colossae are reminded that whatever you do, you're to do heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Here is our practical hope at work. We're not working for that guy. We're not going to be paid by that guy. We are going to be rewarded ultimately by our true master in heaven. Hope at work. Um, we, are to be, uh, we are to be reminded that this dictates a view of creation now, and our care for it should be appropriate. That is to say, um, the single most important fact about our human body as we consider this morning, is that it's going to be raised and it's going to live forever. And therefore, since it's going to be raised forever, since it's God's good creation and gift to us, we reverence the body, right? Even in death, uh, we bear a powerful witness 
to this most important fact in Christian's care for the body. Can't stop and prove it to you, but you know. In the same way, I'm saying now, we take care of the earth and revere it as God's creation, conserving it, guarding it, and so forth, knowing that it too has a future. It too is God's gift to us, and we bear witness to it by our care. Uh, seen in a variety of ways in the Bible, for instance, in the law of God, that Israel uh, is commanded not to deforest the ground unnecessarily and to use fruit trees for their highest purpose and uh, a number of other requirements and how the righteous man takes good care of his animals in the, in the, in the wisdom psalms. Revelation speaks about those who destroy the earth and how they themselves are to be destroyed for we, we bear witness to the world when we take good care of the gift God has given that this is ours and this is forever. We do it with the body, so we do it with creation. And so when a Christian throws a Coke can of his, out of his car window carelessly or risks the life of his animals carelessly, he is a Christian not practicing his faith who does not revere the word of God as, uh, sorry, the world that God made as his own everlasting home, as God's great gift, a masterwork. Well, the more that we do rejoice in the beauty and fruitfulness of this earth, ponder its secrets, and uh, wonder at its designs, well, I mean, if this cursed world is the, the glory that has fallen, what will the redeemed world be? The more that we think of these things in longing, our faith and a new heavens and a new earth will be put to good use. All right. So we could go down that route. Um, sometimes the Christian hope of heaven is scorned as pie in the sky as if it interfered with a useful life, but I'm trying to show you that it affects everything. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, it should every day make us a happy, joyful people. Um, if you knew for sure that a year from now you'd be inheriting a very large fortune. You would often be thinking of what was soon to come to you and what changes and improvements it would make in your condition. And there would be a lightness in your step, even as you had bad days with many bills in the mail. It wouldn't discourage you much because you knew that your situation was about to improve radically. Well, how much more an eternal world of joy. And this is what we are to think of in all of our afflictions and sufferings. Even though the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. And our light affliction, which is for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we don't look at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Well, we were made for a deep and unconquerable love. And this is what the Bible calls life. Even now, we are to live that life enjoy as the eternal prospect soon awaits. It should make us a patient and encouraged people. All of our losses will soon be repaid by Christ. All of our patience and endurance will be rewarded. A cup of cold water will not escape his notice when given to a disciple for a disciple's sake. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. Be patient be courageous. And finally, it should make us a confident and expectant people. And with this, I'll close. Here's a poem. Oh, think to step on shore, and that shore, heaven, 
to take hold of a hand, and that God's hand to breathe a new air and feel it celestial air, to feel invigorated and know it immortality. Oh, think, to pass from storm and tempest to one unbroken calm, to wake up and find it glory. Glory. Well, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we long for such glory. And behold, what manner of love you have given to us that we should be called the sons of God. You have made us heirs of glory, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if now indeed we suffer with him, in order that we might be glorified together with him. And so it is, our Father, that we pray that we should look upon him who is the, the promise, the, the center of all of our hope and desire, the lamb that is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. We would pour out our hearts before you and confess that all is from your good hand in this creation and redemption, and how much more in that beautiful world to come. Help us to live more and more in line with the destiny of the people we shall soon be in the place that we even now can, by the spirit that is within us, long for and feel in our bones. We pray that this eternal home will never give us comfort or rest in this life. No, not until we stand before you and dwell forevermore with you, O Lord. And may our children all be with us together in your heavenly kingdom. To your name's sake and for your glory, we devote ourselves once again.